My guest today is Brent Blair of Rockford, Illinois, a licensed attorney. Now, Brent received a bachelor's degree in criminology and sociology from NIU and also got his Juris Doctor from NIU. Go Huskies. Go Huskies. <laughs> and he is a licensed private investigator through the state of Illinois and also a certified firearms instructor, including in pistol, home firearm safety, and concealed carry. He is also certified through the National Rifle Association as a range safety officer. He has trained hundreds of civilians to use firearms safely in his 15-year career, and he has a law practice here in Rockford, Illinois, where he serves clients in family law. And he is, of course, my guest today. Welcome to Prime Law Podcast, Brent. Well, thank you, Andrew. I'm glad to be here. All right, then. Well, let's hop right into it because I have a few questions about uh, firearm ownership and firearm owner's identification and all that fun stuff. So let's hop right in. How does one become a legal firearm owner in the state of Illinois? Well, in the state of Illinois, you need a uh, essentially a firearm license. We call it a FOID card, a Firearm Owner's Identification Card. Uh, there are several other states that have similar requirements. Some are more strict than Illinois, but not too many. Illinois is one of the strictest uh, states in the United States, in my opinion, as to firearm owner uh, requirements. When we look through the list, as I uh, study the FOID Act itself, uh, there are a lot of requirements. I don't know if you want me to go through some of them or well, all look, of them quickly. Well, uh, let's go through, just let's do the, you know, mile wide inch deep. What, what's the basics? Well, the basics are essentially you have to be 21 years of age, uh, first of all. No 18-year-olds owning guns. No, no, no it's, a, it's a possession thing. And you uh, can possess a firearm if you're under 18 years of age, as long as it's not a handgun. Uh, and you can get a FOID card as long as you have an affidavit signed by a parent. You're under 21. So that would allow you to possess a long gun, say a shotgun or a rifle for hunting, uh, but not a, uh, not a handgun. So a handgun is strictly for over 21. Yes, yes. And there's federal law in that regard as well. Fascinating. Then you also have to be a resident of the state of Illinois. There are no non Illinois resident uh, applications. Uh, so someone from Wisconsin or Indiana can't apply to be a firearm, firearm owner or to hold a FOID card, we should say, in the state of Illinois. No, no. Now, the concealed carry law is different because that has a provision for non-residents to apply for an Illinois concealed carry license. FOID doesn't have that, although the Illinois law does allow for non-residents to possess firearms in Illinois as long as they're on uh, licensed hunting grounds or private property, and also if they were in the direct company of someone who did have an Illinois FOID card. So there's kind of this transference where as long as you have at least one responsible person, yes. so to speak. Yeah, something like that. Then also you can't have been convicted of a felony, and uh, essentially the definition of a felony is some sort of crime in this state or any other state for which you could have been sentenced to a year or more jail or prison so misdemeanors are would you know where it's less than a year you could still legally get a, a FOID card but oh I, I see your face changing tell me more generally that's true except for um certain types of battery charges it could be a misdemeanor offense that involved a firearm which would prohibit you from getting a FOID card or some sort of a domestic battery ah uh, and domestic battery no matter what no matter what any in federal law and Illinois state law are very hard on persons who have committed battery 
either a battery with some sort of deadly weapon or a battery against a spouse, family member, uh, or someone, perhaps a girlfriend, that you, girlfriend or boyfriend that you're living with. So they, you run into all kinds of problems with any kind of domestic battery type situation. And the, as you might expect, the definition of domestic battery is somewhat broad. Ah, gotta love our divine legislature. Well, right? you know, the state of Illinois is, uh, is not a, a firearm friendly state by any means. And they, uh, in my opinion, look for uh, any reason or all the reasons to uh, deny a FOID card, in my experience. Uh, the other, the other uh, requirements, uh, without getting into too much detail, you can't uh, be addicted to narcotics. Uh, you can't have been uh, a mental patient in a health uh, care facility. And there are a number of requirements related to the mental health uh, issue, which uh, comes up in the news a lot. I find it interesting. We're barely five minutes in, and we've already mentioned three act, three different laws governing right, all right. this. So you can't have been a patient uh, in a mental health facility within the last five years. You can't have be a person who's been a judged uh, an intellectual uh, disability. Uh, you can't have been involuntarily admitted to a health care facility ever. Oh. Or you can't be a person that has uh, what they're calling a developmental uh, disability. So there's a number of mental health requirements. And these are questions when you uh, do your application. Uh, for a FOID card, which is uh, strictly online now through the state police website, they're going to ask you questions about all of those things. Um, and what makes it uh, difficult to avoid those issues is there are a number of requirements uh, for various treatment providers that require them to notify the state police if you are receiving mental health treatment, if you've been admitted. I had a case one time where the gal was strictly just examined at a local hospital for mental health uh, disability. And that created and a she, problem? It created a problem. She was discharged. Uh, uh, they released her. Um, the determination, best I can recall, was that she was not suffering from any sort of mental health issues. She was just having an emotional uh, time with a boyfriend breakup or something like that. And they seized her firearm and her FOID card, and it took us a while to get those back. And in my opinion, there was no reason to keep them. But uh, so be aware that if you're applying for your FOID and you're answering those questions on the online uh, application, that if any of these issues have come up in your past, uh, they could particularly come up within the last five years, yes, they are going to know. Uh, they are going to know, they're going to be able to find out whether you've been adjudicated with a disability or admitted to a health facility for a mental illness uh, because those facilities are required to sign an affidavit and send it to the state police. They're going to know this. Stuff. And of course, you know, when we get to the end here, when you lie, mm, oh, <laughs> you lie yes, in your application, it's going to be a problem. And who'd have thunk? <laughs> Who'd have thunk? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the other issue that's maybe somewhat related to that is uh, if you have ever had an order of protection, domestic violence order of protection against you, or now in the state of Illinois, perhaps a no no contact or stalking, no, no, no contact. stalking order. Again, uh, there are provisions uh, 
for the in the uh, judicial system that they are when those orders are entered they are notifying the state police there's a specific form that gets filled out in court sent to the state police so they're going to know about that so you run into problems with those because they're they're of limited duration you run into problems with those in my experience once they expire then trying to get your FOIA back but your prohibited from having a firearm or uh, retaining your FOID card while any kind of domestic order of protection is in effect. That causes problems for lots of folks. You can't have been convicted of a battery or assault or um, a violation of an order of protection. So that's not only, so with Illinois, as I understand it, you have the no contact, which literally means no contact, you cannot be sending messages, you can't be texting, you can't be calling, let alone right. you can't tell someone, hey, pass this message along. Absolutely, in direct or indirect conduct, which causes people, in my experience, uh, has caused some of my clients uh, grief in the past when they've asked somebody else to text the girl or the boy, or they're texting them, or they're searching for them, or communicating with them on some sort of social media gets people in all kinds of when you have a, a domestic violence order of protection or no contact order, that means no contact. I had a client not too long ago who had the other side complain, didn't get charged, but had the other side complain because he drove by and haunt. Really? Yes. Did that lead to anything? Or? It did not lead to anything, but I don't know if it would have or could have. But the other side... Um, their attorney wrote me a letter saying, hey, this happened. My client doesn't want to pursue a violation of the no contact order, but please remind your client no contact means no contact. Let alone honk for Jesus or yes. something. <laughs> uh, now, that you know, it would have been an interesting factual uh, situation if it mm -hmm. had gone somewhere. But uh, he drove by and honked. It was a girl. He drove by and honked at her, and, and she's still. In, they were in high school. So it's, uh, that was potentially a problem. Uh, who knows what the court would have done with that, but we were able to avoid that by reaffirming to my client is to have no contact. It means no contact. So and no it, waving or honking. And it goes both ways in no contact yes, order. Yes. Well, no. Oh, it no, doesn't? No, no, Tell no, me about no. that. Not in my experience. Um, this comes up This comes up occasionally, too. You have this, uh, say, a domestic violence order of protection that's in effect against, let's call it the boyfriend, the, the uh, girlfriend has got one against the boyfriend, uh, she is not technically prohibited from contacting the boyfriend, but he's prohibited from contacting her. Whoa. That's... This comes up occasionally because what happens, right? Everything cools down. And I'm, like, I'm sorry, or... Yes. And so uh, I've had a couple of cases where then the girlfriend, who was the petitioner for the order of protection, right, is texting... The boy who's prohibited from having any contact with her. Meanwhile, uh, his order of protection is still in it's effect. It's in effect, yes. Uh, inviting him to come over or inviting him to do this or that or meet them or communicate with them. Or just, hey, text uh, me. I want to hear from you. Yes. I even had a case that caused some serious problems for my client, although we did for a while. We did get it to ultimately the, um, the violation charge dismissed. But she had contacted him and told him if he wanted to see his child, they had a child together, that he, she better, he better respond to her text message. Oh. And of course he did. Yeah, I want to see my kid. Right. Next call she made was to the police. Well, that, that, okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, so she had, uh, she had uh, initiated the contact. 
uh, and I suspect my client was glad to hear from her, and he responded. And then, uh, if I remember right, this particular case, I've had several of them, but uh, it wasn't this case, it was another case similar. Um, the next contact he had with her, shortly thereafter, the officer was actually standing there next to her. <laughs> oh, my. And he saw her, him. He saw my client texting her. And she hands him the phone and says, here he is. He's doing it again. But she had initiated all this. So mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, the uh, state's attorney's office was reasonable under those circumstances and dismissed that charge. But the fact is the police, did, you know, it wasn't a wrongful prosecution of that. I, if it had been, I, I would have, I would have made that argument. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. they did not, they did not pursue that. The officer responded to him. I believe he called him and said, "Hey, you know, you're not supposed to have any contact with Carol." Said, well, but she texted me first, sir, and and she had so. Um, what an interesting happenstance. Yes, on that one. yes, and those kind of things happen a lot, and you do see a lot of violations of order protection, or you see them or hear about them. Don't get prosecuted because everybody has kissed and made up, and they're now friendly. And then things go sour, and oops. And then they have another fight, and then there's accusations. He was here on this day or that day or whatever. And, of course, uh, as an attorney, your defense starts to be, well, then why didn't we call the police on the day he was actually here? Yeah, why are we doing it? Two weeks Two later. Two weeks later, three weeks later, a month later, whatever it is. So those situations come up. But, but what I tell people when they ask me these kind of questions about the Floyd Act, I said, uh, that order of protection is in effect. For the second it goes into effect, the court's going to notify the state police. You're required under the Act uh, within 48 hours to turn over your toy. Where do you, well, I, well, let's, let's, let's get to that in a moment because okay. I actually want to circle back a little bit. Void Firearm Owner Identification Act, which right. is governing, do you get like an ID of some kind? Yes, or? you get an ID. And they're in the process of changing some of that process. Uh, they amended the uh, Firearm Owners Identification Act. Last year, several amendments took effect. Some amendments took effect uh, in January of this year. And then slightly thereafter, because they made some changes pursuant to the assault weapons ban, and so the, the FOID, some provisions of the FOID Act have been kind of in flux as far as uh, changing those requirements. So uh, there are new forms of IDs for firearm owners' identification cards coming out. They're combining those under certain circumstances with concealed carry license holders so that they're carrying one firearm ID instead of two. It's been two up until this year. That, that, and that does segue very well, and I don't mean to interrupt, but that segues well into my next question, though. So we've talked about, boy, that's how you are legally allowed to possess and own a firearm. Right. Where does concealed carry fit into that? Because it, to, to me, you know, as, as someone who doesn't own any firearms, I'm like, why would, why would, what is concealed carry? And more importantly, why do I need two? Like, what, what is this about? Well, there are two, there are two different, there are two different statutory acts. Right, so the FOID card allows you to possess a firearm, um, but not drive around with it in public, not carry it on your person, you carry it around on your person, or drive around with it in public, loaded, or not concealed in a case or something. 
then you run into problems with the criminal law, and it's called the unlawful use of weapons statute. So a FOIA card would allow me to say, have it in my home. Have it in your home, or you can take it to a range or uh, take it to someone else's private property. If you're in public, uh, it allows you to possess the firearm, but it has to be unloaded and enclosed in a case. So to transport it. So to transport it to and from the range, to and from a safety class, to and from my safety class, lucky enough to have taken one. Um, we're working on it. <laughs> we're working on it. Yeah. But some, something, something like that, but it has to be either non-functioning or broken down or enclosed, unloaded and enclosed in a case. Can't be used for, transport it. can't be used for aggression, so to speak, is the kind of idea. Well, in it. that's the idea is to not be able to have it out in public. You can possess it at your home or transport it in under one of those conditions to a firing range. Or something. Okay. Now the concealed carry act, then if you have the second license, which will soon be just one on the same card. Uh, that allows you to carry a loaded firearm around on your person as long as it's on your person or in your car. Is there anything like open carry? Not in Illinois. There are in some other states. Wisconsin's one of them where they have open carry. Once you've done the training, which is minimal there compared to Illinois, once you've done the training, you can open carry in Wisconsin. And it's, uh, for me anyway, and I'm, I'm very familiar with firearms, and I teach all this stuff, uh, I, when I occasionally, and I live near the Wisconsin border, so I'm occasionally in Wisconsin, and every once in a while I see somebody walking around with an open carry pistol on their hip or a holster or something. And even as experienced as I am with firearms, that's very unsettling. I don't like the idea, me personally, in my opinion, I don't like the idea of carrying a firearm in public in plain sight. Uh, I think they should be concealed. I think even if you, in my opinion, have an open carry license in whichever state, wouldn't be Illinois, um, I don't know why you would want to open carry. It, it makes for a almost, number of reasons. Well, it makes you almost a target for whoever is coming in. You would in. think. You would think, plus, it, you know, if there are any bad guys about to commit armed robberies and they see you, you're, you may end up being their first target. I mean, there's a number of reasons I could go into. Uh, if you want to delve, if you want me to drift off off topic, but it's very unsettling to me, even as familiar with firearms as I as I am. Plus, um, you know, depending on the person, the age, sex, it'd be easy to disarm that person if you were uh, because you already man. have the element of surprise on your side. So yes, to speak. yes, yes. Didn't have that gun on your hip. Uh, just I don't know it's unsettling for me, but that is not Illinois. There are a number of states that have open carry. But Illinois only has ownership and then concealed yeah, carry. If you have the second license or the second classification, if we could call it that, because it's going to be one license now, you can carry a, a loaded firearm in public as long as it's concealed, with the caveat that there are 123 places that you can't go. 123? I, I exaggerated okay. a little bit. But There's actually 23 on the list, uh, plus certain parking lots, plus anywhere prohibited by federal law. So there's quite a list of places in the Concealed Carry Act, which is separate from the FOID, where you cannot go with a loaded firearm, even if you have your concealed carry license. So you're still very limited. I'm assuming that would limited. be like your public buildings, like courthouses. Yes, courthouses, uh, city jails, halls, any kind of public building, um, park district facilities, like as for, for Rockford. Like the BMO, uh, sports core, uh, places like indoor soccer center, the arenas like and all that. The, all the arenas, sports, sporting events, um, 
most of those places are searching you for guns sometimes anyway, but the ones that aren't, uh, there's still a lot of places that are illegal to carry a firearm. Plus, and maybe you've seen them in public, the little symbol with the gun with the circle and the red line through it. Almost looks like the Ghostbusters thing. Yes, it almost looks like a Ghostbusters thing, only there's a firearm behind Supposed there to Ghostbusters. instead of Casper. It, well, instead um, of Ghostbusters, it's gun, Gunbusters. Gunbusters, yes. So uh, for other public uh, facilities or private businesses or private buildings that don't want firearms carried on their premises, they can post sign at the entrances. And that makes it illegal to carry a or concealed carry a firearm. Yes, that would make it illegal, notwithstanding the fact that you have uh, the two licenses. Fair enough. So my next question then uh, kind of goes with the concealed carry, because as you said, they're, they're two becoming one, but I'm guessing there's additional training in the concealed carry. Spectrum. Oh, for sure. Yes. You what what kind of training? 16 out, there's a 16 hour course, which includes a course of fire. So not only are you uh, taking 14 or 15 hours of uh, uh, classroom instruction, uh, which I teach, you also have to go to a range and you have to do a live fire qualification. So FOID, the, the original card, I could apply for that and that gives me the right of possession, but I don't have like a class like that no, with that. No, no, not, not for the FOID. For the concealed carry part of it, there's a 16-hour class. Uh, that involves uh, live fire qualification. Uh, it's relatively easy, in my opinion, but it is, uh, uh, on a note, probably, to my knowledge anyway, there are other states that make it more difficult to do that for other reasons, but Illinois has the longest classroom in the country, I think. Oh. But Illinois is a shall-issue state, for the people that under, might, might or might not understand what that means. Other states have a, a may issue. Meaning it's up to the state whether yes. or not they yes. issue the license. They would have certain reasons that you would have to give them why you need to be able to carry a concealed firearm. Some kind of, of justification. Some, some sort of justification or some sort of threat to you. Or, some, or maybe you're in a job or you're transporting cash after work. and You have to go to the bank and, and you're subject to the higher... Uh, scrutiny for being robbed or something like that. Illinois, as long as you do all their stuff, pass the class, pass the fire, live fire qualification, they will grant you your license. And they'll do a background check. As long as your background is clear, you get fingerprinted, they do a state and federal background check. As long as you pass all the requirements, they will issue the concealed carry license. Other states, they, the, the requirements for training are less. But the requirements to justify getting the license, the license itself, more strict. Interesting. So interesting. So we've talked about Boyd Act. We've talked about these uh, concealed carry. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the relevant issue of today, which is the SECURE Act. Um, I know that you know, I'm, I'm hitting you a little bit on the blind side, uh, or a curveball more accurately with this one, but what kind of changes were proposed? Obviously, you, you know that the licenses were supposed to become, the concealed carry and FOID were supposed to become one. Any yes. other changes that were put into that? Uh, there are a number of changes that went into effect with that. I'm looking through my notes. Uh, one of the sign 
significant changes I think is significant is the new requirements for the transfer of a firearm. And I use that word intentionally because it doesn't necessarily have to be a sale, wouldn't have to be a gift. There's not uh, any money exchanging hands that's required. It's, it's ownership. transferring ownership to another person. And the uh, people who have purchased firearms at uh, retail outlets have gone through the process of application questions about that. And a lot of those questions are the same questions, same issues we went over initially about the requirements for the FOID Act. But those who have purchased firearms, purchased them regularly, understand the federal form that gets filled out. It has a lot of these questions. It also involves, as does the FOID, uh, certain citizenship requirements or legal alien status you to be able to apply for a FOID, purchase the firearm. But what the, the new act did, and the new act is the assault weapons ban, which also modified other statutes because the legislature can't do just one thing. You gotta change a bunch of stuff. Which brings up time. which brings up a whole <laughs> new issue under Illinois constitutional law, which I right. promise my listeners I will talk about when we get to the constitutional Another series. Time. But right. but I know what you're talking about, which is right. the single issue right. rule right. of exactly. legislating. Exactly. So at least in that um, at least in that act. They, they limited, they changed a number of different statutes, but they were all at least somewhat related to firearms. The, for the private person, the thing that made the biggest change, in my opinion, was transportation. So for the longest time in Illinois, if I wanted to sell you a gun as a private party or give you a gift or just give it to you, period, mm-hmm. um, there wasn't much you had to do. Uh, then uh, a number of years ago, uh, they started, they set up a website. They amended the act to require private transfers to go on to the state police website, at least put in the person's name, their FOID number, and you had to confirm that their FOID card was valid. The state had a lot of trouble, apparently, keeping track of the FOID card, keeping track of whether they were still valid or not valid. There were a lot of times, um, I suspect, I've run across a few where people had done something that should have caused them to lose their FOID or get their FOID suspended, meanwhile, but they never sent it in. And meanwhile, it says, you're good. Right, right, exactly, right? So they had their FOID card. Uh, maybe there was an order of protection in effect, or maybe they committed some sort of uh, misdemeanor battery charge, and technically, the FOID should have been revoked, and they should have turned it over within 48 hours. Nobody ever checked. So they still had their FOID card. They were still out purchasing firearms and and ammunition. And nobody seemed to check. And then recent events, I'm saying recent using um, they started tightening up. So I, I, I don't know exactly when, but let's call it 10 years, give or take. They uh, started requiring even private citizens to go on to the state police website and type in Andrew and maybe your birth date and you would have your FOID number. And the idea here was to now start catching people that were making private transfers without somebody who still had their FOID who wasn't supposed to. And I assume they started catching those and they would be denied. 
and you would print out a sheet that gave you an authorization number, like a picture. Like when you fill out any of those right, online right. forms, yeah. Right, and you are the onus on the transferor, uh, me giving a gun, transferring a gun to you, was I had to print this form out that gave me an authorization number, and I'm supposed to hang out of that for 10 years. Oof. Yeah, yeah, private citizen, and it's a felony. Let's do it, right? And then you lose your FOID card. Then you lose your FOID card, right? So what the new act, I'm referring to the assault weapons ban, modified a bunch of stuff in the FOID Act. Probably the most onerous thing for the private person would be these transfer requirements. So now, by, I believe it's July 1 of this year, going to be the end of the year, but they bumped it up because they've been amending uh, this statute a lot the last two or three years. Um, their web, the website for the state police is supposed to be updated to include uh, a national uh, uh, internet criminal background check, just like you would do, like a licensed firearms dealer would do. So basically it's adding that it's universal adding, background check. It's adding that universal background check that you've heard people screaming about a lot in the news for years. Oh, no, he's been doing that for a while anyway. So whatever the federal government does isn't going to, in my opinion, not going to affect it. But they, they added not only this form that I talked about a moment ago where you have to go in and get an authorization number, they're now supposed to update uh, that website so that it does the same background check that a, a retail firearm, uh, federal firearms license. So it's not just buying a do. gun, it's transferring right. a gun. Any kind of transfer. And that's why they use the word transfer, uh, use the word gift, uh, sale, possession, you're transferring possession, you have to do this background check. And by July, it's going to be an enhanced, it's going to be a full background check like any other firearms dealer would have to do. Fascinating. And then, right. of course, those felony provisions, if you don't do it. Yes, but it gets worse. Oh, do tell. You thought I was done. Oh, really? I'm not. Oh, tell me more, so it Brent. it gets worse. Tell me more. So the transferor, seller, giftor, whatever word you want to use, has to do, go onto this website and do that. They have to keep that record for 10 years. The transfer E, the recipient, starting in, I believe it's January of 2024. So in July, they're going to update the background check uh, system. system, in theory, or at least that's what they're supposed to do. Well, they're supposed by to the do. end of the year, by January of 2024, the recipient, the transferee, if you will, has to go to a federal firearms dealer and register that they have received this firearm and who they got it from. Oh, so it's not only the transferor declaring that the gun yes. is no longer in their possession. The transferee has to show, Transfer I have taken e possession. The has to do the same thing. Is that under Illinois or is that federal? That's Illinois. Okay. That's Illinois. This is the kind of stuff they've been talking about at the federal level, but hasn't really happened. But like I indicated a couple of minutes ago, Illinois has kind of been doing this background check thing for a while, 10 or 15, 20 years. So that puts an onus on each party to that transaction. And of course, the, you know, the, the, one of the fears of the gun lobby people, right, is that this creates a system where guns that aren't already in the system are going to ultimately be registered. That's exactly because the recipient, uh, your gun as the transferor may not have been a gun that you purchased and all these other requirements were going on, or you may have gotten it from your father or a parent uh, or a family member, maybe grandpa is 22, that used to 
squirrels with on a farm or whatever, gave it to you as a gift one day, and nobody did anything. Just you had your FOID card, and nobody had to record or transfer, uh, do any transfer records or any kind of registration. Now, if you're going to do that, apply with the law, both parties are now going to have to do a record transfer. That's quite, that's quite an oversight. Right? Make the transferee now go to the dealer. And then the dealer is required to keep that record. They didn't sell the gun. They're just facilitating this transfer, kind of, sort of. I, uh, and they ought to keep that record for 20 years. Well, if you'll, if you'll let me, I'm kind of, I kind of want to challenge just your thought process mm-hmm. on it a little bit. Because um, I kind of equate it to vehicle ownership. The idea of, in Illinois, you have to, what you're supposed to do now, enforceability versus what happens, nobody follows it entirely. But what you're supposed to do is when you have the title to your vehicle and you sell it, you take that title and there's literally a physical form at the bottom that the seller uh, fills out and you're supposed to send that to the Secretary of State. Then what's supposed to happen is the person who buys that automobile automobile has to take the title, signed and transferred, over to the Secretary of State to get their new license plates. So how is this any different? Well, on, on the, in the one sense, it's not. In another sense, I think the response you would get from constant Tell you that uh, having a driver's license is a privilege, not a right. Owning a car is a privilege, not a right. There's no constitutional amendment that says you have the right to own a vehicle, right? Whereas there is a constitutional right that says you have a right to own a firearm. That's the argument you're going to get. Um, and being a gun person, I mean, that would be the response that you would get, if that makes sense to you or your listeners. Even though I would consider myself a firearms advocate, pro-Second Amendment person, I, there's a part of me that does not object to some kind of record. Even though it's, it's an antiquated language, which doesn't mean what we mean to di- what we. Uh, say it means today because of dictionary changes well regulated the second amendment the word well regulated back in the 1700s meant something that functioned in order to have a militia that worked uh you you had an individual right in our well regulated government today we well i think you know where i'm going with this yeah i i I do and this is where we're going to start to stray on our viewpoints (laughs) Um, it's all right. We're having a, a good You know, discourse. I mean, the thing is, um, when if to look at the Bill of Rights, particularly uh, those amendments, right? And the idea was to uh, allow the populace, right, to uh, resist government force, right? And oppressive was it King George? Which one? one? There were six. Six. Well, one of the King Georges, right, during the Revolution. Well, this was the third, yeah. The third, okay. <laughs> You're gonna you're gonna run away from me on history, but the idea was right, right that 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 we wanted the citizens to be able to rise up against an oppressive government, which is what our forefathers were doing. That dynamic obviously has changed over the course of 200 or 250 years, whatever it is. Whatever it is, um, yeah. Coming up close, and yeah. So they're very complicated arguments. And uh, I'm not going to uh, try to fool you for one second and that I'm the best constitutional expert in the world. But, but that's 
what they were. That's why that was included. That's why it's, you know, second, right? Because they wanted to be able to be armed. And the reasoning, one of the reasoning, parts of the reasoning was that if the government becomes too oppressive, we have the ability to rise up and meet force with force. Now, uh, the dynamics changed in, in many, many ways. Spent a lot of time talking about it. It would be if the military in our current society was to take this side of the government against the people, there is no way that private citizens could rise up and defeat the military. We just don't, even with all the assault weapons. Um, arguments. You, you just wouldn't have the ability to do it. Even on top of that, I mean, just because you would point. need helicopters. Oh, yeah, Biden but, said some silly thing. Well, you need F fifteen. Well, I mean, case in point, January sixth. I mean, you, you, that was a assault on the Capitol, and the police were able to. Uh, it took time, but they were able to maintain order. They were able to maintain order, but we can. I don't want to get into too many specifics about that. But there was very little, very few armed people there that actually got into the building. My, is my understanding. I've done a lot of reading about it. There's some dispute about what armed means. I think there were very few protesters that got into the building that actually had firearms on. And the only person actually killed, there's some dispute about this, actually killed during the course of that was a, an unarmed woman who was either in the military or was a law enforcement person or maybe a retired the only person that was actually killed, and she was killed by one of the uh, Capitol Police. Well, returning to uh, returning to Illinois, then specifically, Let's go back I, to Illinois. I do want to say I'm very happy we went on that tangent, though. I mean, it's just, oh, it just it was very formative. Of course you are. Um, but you caught me a little off guard there. Well, uh, Andrew, that's my job, Brent. <laughs> that's your job. All right, so <laughs> my po- my co- my podcast, my rules. <laughs> your podcast, your rules. <laughs> but, but I would have been. I would have tried to be a little more uh, prepared those arguments but i you know i still i understand the issue yeah and they're complicated and they're more complicated now than they were in 1776 and just so you know a full disclosure i'm not trying to blindside you oh either. no come mm-hmm. come get me oh no, all right all right well I'm then let, well let's hit it head on with the illinois history all right, uh, so what 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 are your questions or what are your thoughts about illinois well i'm curious because of course you've talked about the assault weapons ban yes but that is as i understand it kind of an on hold kind of not on hold if you well i uh would defer to you to explain to me exactly what's on hold and what's not on hold. We had this conversation before we went on the air, if that's what this is. Yeah, that's it. Um, was it the 5th District has upheld the uh, temporary restraining order that went into effect in several counties uh, uh, down south? Uh, originally, and there's four or five counties now that have temporary restraining orders in effect, I think. I'm not going to be able to name them. Effingham. It started in Effingham, I believe. Always um, Effingham. Well, it's a nice rural farm community where people are driving around in the back of their truck to see coyotes. Uh, I'm not serious. About that. <laughs> That's Texas. That's Texas. Texas has really great. Um, <laughs> so, and in a couple of the articles I read, and I mentioned this to you earlier, mm-hmm. that uh, there was uh, one article that said uh, the bans were, even though they've been upheld by the appellate court, were only in effect, uh, and it's a it's a res- it's a ban against enforcing the statute. It hasn't been found unconstitutional. Uh, that's the argument, but it hasn't been found. But it's just a stay against enforcing it. 
And then there's this decision from the 5th District that says that somebody's been arguing. I, I don't know if it is or isn't, but it's, uh, it's a statewide. Thing. I would, so I would leave that to your appellate experience to uh, sure. and, and if, tell our listeners whether you think that's a sure. statewide ban or not. Well, what I would say is that, um, and this is speaking generally because I've read the opinion once and understanding how appellate process works, You've had the 5th District as the only one who has entered in on the issue. And so what it is, is trial courts are bound by the decisions of the appellate district, and this is in the state of Illinois, wherein they sit. So we have five districts in Illinois. If the 1st District has a decision, then the 1st District circuit courts, the trial courts, are bound by that. Um, In other appellate districts, those are persuasive, and if it's on point, it's considered binding. So the trial court should follow those right and then what happens is is if it goes up to the district and then the district says differently then you have a district split which is right material for the supreme court to come in later yes and that's i assume that's where they want to go my guess is going to be correct me if i'm wrong that this will get the tro itself will get to the supreme court relatively quickly yeah under supreme court rules it goes very not the merits of the underlying case just the tro TRO. issue yeah tro being temporary restraining order uh, of course, I mean, a lot of people that uh, know, understand that uh, I'm into firearms and all of that, and I teach the class. So I've been asked a number of times, just in this short, short period of time, whether it's just in those counties, is it statewide, is it in effect, is it not in effect, can I go buy an assault rifle? Um, what I've told them, and, and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I said I, I would only be safe saying, yes, it is in effect in the counties that are in the 5th District, because I don't know what the other four are doing. Well, here, here's how it, and here's how it generally works. So, um, and, and this is understanding the mechanics of how everything is filed and how it's done. These lawsuits in the 5th District were not filed as class actions. They were filed by hundreds of individual plaintiffs coming together to assert right, their right. Right, there's slightly over 1,000. Exactly. It's actually kind of funny to read the appellate case because it's over 40 pages, but the first 10 of them are the parties listing. Yes. Um, and it, just an interesting note that I got some emails, probably because I'm on these different lists for firearms. stuff. I got some emails about a firm that was charging $200, $200 a head. Yes. People wanted to uh, be added to these lawsuits. Um, my initial thought was, yes, I want to be on board. And then I'm like, yeah, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute! They charge me money to enforce my constitutional rights. So we'll let the uh, we'll let the courts sort it out. Uh, at this time, I'm just telling people that ask me personally because I'm not going to be selling. I do have dealers like I'm not going to be selling high capacity mags. I'm going to wait and see what the Supreme Court does, at least as far as the injunction decision. So what I've told people that ask me is I like. Uh, and they don't, this isn't the answer they were looking for. I'm telling them, uh, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Don't do it right now. It won't be that long, I think. You may know more. Well, I've, I got the appellate practice. I get you. Right. Um, it won't be long before the Supreme Court, I, in my, I feel, you can correct me if I'm wrong, weighs in on at least the TRO part of it, and then we'll have a better idea as mm-hmm. far as the other districts and the other counties, whether uh, somebody can possess sell, transfer, uh, all, that jazz. Rifle, all that jazz, yeah. or high capacity magazine, which is uh, another yeah. issue, which just, just so we, just so we know real quick, because 
a lot of people don't think of shotguns as assault weapons, but there are some provisions for certain type of shotguns. They're also permitted. They hold more than five rounds, which is not much for shotgun or any other firearm. Or if they have pistol grips or muzzle brakes, flash depressors, those kind of things, uh, shrouded barrels, uh, threaded barrels. All, they, they tried to cover everything that they could think of. And they thought of a lot. Indeed. Well, and just to circle back, because I don't think I actually answered the question, does it apply statewide? And of course, I have to give the disclaimer, we're not, you know, we don't have individual clients, there's no attorney-client relationship being done by this podcast, but this is just us expressing our individual opinions. Yes. Um, But when it comes to, does this 5th District opinion uh, apply statewide, I would say no, in the sense that the way the mechanics are is because it wasn't a class action, it's only binding upon the parties. And it sets precedent if other parties were to file on a similar issue. Now, there are some updates that I'll give you only because I know them. The McHenry County State's Attorney's Office, which is the county that Crime Law Group is based out of, but as I'm in Rockford, it's two counties over. The state's attorney has actually taken this up as a lawsuit on behalf of the people, and it's currently up in federal court. It just got removed to the district court in federal. Yeah, I was was curious when the lawsuits started why somebody ended up well, well, part of it is because they were interpreting it under Illinois Constitution, and also they wanted it in Illinois courts because they're hoping it will go to the Illinois Supreme Court first. So that's strategy, that's trial stuff, that's right, all right, that. Right. But from an appellate standpoint, if somebody were to assert their right, as in they would file a, de- a declaratory judgment suit or something like that, I would say the Fifth District opinion is going to be followed, and until we have something different or substantiated in other districts, that's the logic that's going to follow. And again, it only reached the temporary restraining order phase, which you talked about, which is not a question on the merits of the suit, right. but whether or not there's going this question is going to be heard and how do we maintain the status quo. So it'll be very interesting to see where this ends up. And it may even end up in front of the United States Supreme Court, which will be you know, fascinating. You never know. It'd be interesting because they've, they've been addressing that. Well, they did New York not too long. Indeed. And, and, but New York passed another statute right away. And, boop, uh, uh, and now changed. it's going to work its way up through the system, and we'll see what happens. Um, but uh, I was just curious why it hadn't ended up in federal court. Um, so, and you'll know more. I'm curious about the time period. Well, what to get to the merits of the Supreme Court? If, uh, well, the merits will be interesting, only because expedited in any way, so it doesn't take six months or a year. Well, the T, the TRO issues expedited because TRO, you know, d- d- injunctions and temporary restraining orders are just meant to be that temporary. And so why have it litigated for a long period? There's Supreme Court rules that expedite those uh, through the, that's why we received a fifth district opinion so quickly. Um, I don't know if the, I actually haven't, a little embarrassing, I have not litigated in front of the Supreme Court. I have a case where I might one day, um, but. Uh, Maybe you should jump on board with this. <laughs> I, I'm McHenry al- County State's Attorney. I am always willing to offer my services, but they have to listen and they have to be wanting me to do it. And We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, personally, I'd be I'd be terrified to argue a case with Illinois Supreme Court. It, it's nerve wracking the first time you go up to the appellate court, the first time, and then you get used to it. Same thing with the Illinois Supreme Court. The one that I'm looking forward to in my career, though, is one day U.S. Supreme Court. I would love to do one case. You know, that, that'd be quite a thing to have on your resume. Yeah, terrifying. Well, you know, frankly, the first time I walked into a real courtroom after law school, I was terrified. Ah, uh, so, yes. And that eventually wore off. And now took, you now took, you prefer uh, to be in the 31, 32 years, but I got there. 
And now you're prepared. And now now you're like, I am prepared. And I and you're about to retire. Doesn't scare me a bit. Yeah, I, I got used to it just in time to quit. <laughs> Story of our lives, yes, right? Yes, for well, sure. Well, Brent, we've reached the end. Of, we've we've been talking for almost an hour, so we'll have to definitely bring you back uh, when the stu- when the Supreme Court weighs in and when the federal courts weigh in. But uh, I do ask all of my guests one question, and it's a question that I like to have off the top of your head. It, it, is it an easy question? It, I think it is because it's a very it's not a very intrusive, but it is a uh, bespoke, you know, a tailored question to you. But this is the one question I ask every single one of my guests. If there was one thing you could tell the world, what would it be? Oh, God. This is either even harder than the other blind side. <laughs> you, can take um, a, you can take a moment. Related to firearms or just anything? It can be anything you want. If you could tell the world one thing, tell the world. what would it be? Or more accurately, what is it? How about easy does it? You know what I mean when I say that? It's kind of, in my mind, it's along the lines with don't sweat small stuff. Take it easy. Take a breath. Life has its challenges. They're not going to stop. They're always going to be there. And one thing I hate, I've trained myself over the years, is I try never to have a knee-jerk reaction to any new type of UFO. Stop. Take it easy. Rest. Think about it. Think about what your response is going to be. What response is going to be. Kind of a long explanation of easy. Don't sweat. My guest today was Brent Blair of Rockford, Illinois. Uh, Brent, if anybody wanted to get a hold of you, uh, if they wanted to talk about family law, or if they had questions about maybe becoming a licensed uh, or a concealed carry license holder or a FOID card, how can they get in touch with you? Well, you know, for the Hee Haw fans out there, my number is BR549. No. I'm a little young. shaking his head. Oh, he doesn't remember Hee Haw. Uh, There'll be so, and maybe none of your listeners will either. No, my office number, uh, BR549. I don't know why that jumped into my head. Uh, My office number in Rockford is 815-962-3427. Again, as Andrew may have alluded to, I'm uh, working uh, towards retirement. So I do not have full-time office hours, but I will return. Thank you, Brent, and we'll see you again soon. I hope so. This was a blast.